your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Our text verses tonight uh, are going to be verses 15 through uh, 22, and really it's going to be down through verse 26. I don't think that we're going to get all the way through to that, so we'll just read that as our text here tonight. And we continue in our study through this letter written to the churches of Galatia and studying out the reason why Paul wrote this letter in the first place and how shocked Paul was that these folks had so soon been removed from the gospel of grace, how they had been uh, deceived by the Judaizers who were preaching a works-based salvation. And Paul writes very sternly because there was a war going on, a war for truth. And Paul is correcting, trying to correct this error And we're in the the doctrinal section of this letter, chapters 3 and 4, where Paul is really refuting the doctrine of the Judaizers and laying out salvation by grace through faith and not the works of the law and showing the inferiority of the law uh, for salvation. But then he goes on to show how the law actually cooperates with the grace of God to point people to Jesus Christ. And so I think if you've been with us through our study, you remember... Uh, the context, you remember uh, the, the overall point of this letter that Paul wrote. And as we study it out from that point of view, we also uh, increase in our own learning uh, from the Scriptures, teaching us of the goodness of God and reminding us again of how grateful we ought to be for the grace of God in our own life. And uh, so our, our text tonight, as we continue on in this series Starts here in verse 15 tonight, where Paul says, of chapter 3, where Paul says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have come or should have been by the law. But the scriptures hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit here, 
uh, in just a, a little bit as we unpack this, this portion of Scripture. But Paul is refuting the doctrine of the Judaizers who said that it's not just faith in Christ alone that saves you. In order to be saved, you also not only have to believe, but you also have to do the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law. And Paul is pointing out that, again, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It's always been that way. And there's no adding to it. There's no taking away from it. And laying out, again, the doctrine of justification by faith. And, and so we'll, we'll cover this portion uh, as well as we can uh, tonight. Again, I don't think we're getting all the way through all of that, but that's okay. We'll just take our time to get through it. You've heard it said before, no doubt, that there are no guarantees in life. And there's probably a lot of truth to that statement in general. Um, like the job that you feel secure in today, it might be gone tomorrow. You don't have a guarantee of that. You know, people that you thought were your friends can turn on you. There's no guarantee of that. Um, people, or excuse me, the freedom to live and to work and to worship God could be taken away. There's no guarantee in life in general when it comes to temporal things because life is full of unexpected and unpleasant changes. But it's not true that there are no guarantees in this life when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to spiritual things. There are many guarantees in this life. God's promises are always guarantees. They will never change because God does not change. And so what we find in His Word as a promise is a guarantee, something that you can take to the bank, something you can rest your life on. Amen? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, according to Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Now, that truth that I've just uh, explained is not explicitly stated in our text here tonight, but it is certainly the basis for what Paul has to say here, where he teaches us that God's promise of salvation is dependable because God is unchangeable. And so what God says to be true will always be true. What God promises to us will is a guarantee. It's dependable because God is unchangeable. And Paul's been teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's established that already from both the Word of God and also from the Galatians' own experience. If you recall the last time we were together, Paul is making these arguments, laying out the doctrine of justification by faith and not the works of the law. And Paul is presenting this from a couple of different points of view, trying to get the Galatian believers to, to think and to reason. In verse 2, Paul makes the personal argument. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 2. It's the personal argument. He says, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's talking about, listen, he says, listen, I want to know this. How was it that you got saved? 
How was it that you received the Spirit of God? Did you do the works of the law or was it the hearing of faith? Was it by faith that you received the Holy Spirit of God? He reminded the Galatians that they had received the Holy Spirit of God by faith in Christ and not the works of the law. When you get to verses 8 through 14 of chapter 3, he makes the scriptural argument. Look at verse 8. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul cites several Old Testament references here. And he's making this scriptural argument, and he stated that Christ redeemed us from the law so that we might receive the promise of salvation and eternal life, which is through faith. But Paul's opponents, and, and Paul said here as well, and he, he says the Word of God already teaches us that the just shall live by faith. Uh, Genesis 15.6, Habakkuk 2.4 are all Old Testament references that Paul gives and he says even then the just should live by faith but paul's opponents were very opposed to this truth these jewish teachers of the law these judaizers who come to galatia with a different gospel were preaching that you're saved not by faith only but by faith plus keeping the law and they would argue that when the law was given that it changed the terms of salvation and added a new requirement to it. That was the argument that they were trying to make. Sure, Abraham believed. Sure, Abraham, it was counted unto him for righteousness, for sure. But the law came later, and when the law came, it added a new element that needed to be dealt with. It changed the terms of salvation and added this new requirement. They would say... Yes, it's true, we must believe, just like Abraham believed, but the law came later, and so now there's this second condition that needs to be met. And so Paul is answering that argument with another argument that he's laying out, and it's a logical one. So you've seen the personal argument, the scriptural argument, and now Paul's going to Try to make them think again here and use some logical illustrations and logical terms to make this point that there's no chance that the law could ever change the promise of God. First of all, he's going to come at it from the perspective of human covenants or contracts, and we'll look at this in just a minute, to show that even in human terms, on a human level, promises cannot be broken. In other words, what he's saying is, if men keep their word in business arrangements, 
If men make agreements and men make covenants and they keep their word and nothing can legally change that agreement on a human level, then certainly God is going to keep His word who is perfect. The second attack, if you will, that Paul is going to make is that he answers that by explaining what the function of the law actually was. And he's going to say that the law was not given to be a way of salvation. It was given to assist the promise that God made by exposing sin and leading people to Christ, who is the way of salvation. And so Paul's point here is very simple in our text. The point is this. God has promised that salvation is by faith. He cannot break His word. He will not break His word. His promise stands. The law was given not to change that in any way, but to show us our sin and how desperately we are in need of salvation so that we would turn to the Savior that God has already provided for us. That's the argument that Paul is making. and We're going to look at three different things and again, we'll get as far as we can here tonight. The first logical argument that Paul makes is found in verses 15 through 18. We'll pray first and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help us tonight. We do need it. We need the Spirit of God to give us direction, to give us understanding of truth. And Lord, your word is truth and it's your Spirit that illuminates it for us. So Lord, I pray that you would... Give us that grace tonight to understand what you have said, and Father, to help us to appreciate uh, its truth even more. And Lord, I pray that we would be built up in the faith, and we would be grounded, and we would be rooted in truth. And Father, mature saints of God that not only appreciate and love you for what you've done for us, but are also able in turn to teach others. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the brethren here tonight. Even though this may be something we know, Lord, impress upon our heart even deeper. And Father, may it cause us to love you even more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first logical argument that Paul makes here is that the law cannot possibly change the promise of God. And in verses 15 through 18, he, he spells it out here. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth to thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And Paul's, Paul's point and statement is that the law, it came 430 years after the promise that God gave to Abraham. And when the law came, there's no possible way that the law could change what God had already promised. 
And again, these Judaizers are trying to say that when the law came and added this extra element to it, there's this new condition now that needs to be kept. And Paul's saying that's not true because that law could never change what God had already promised. So Paul begins his proof of the promise over the law with this logical illustration from human relationships and the way that men make agreements even among themselves. In verse 15 is men's covenant with other men. And he says here, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, on human terms, human relationships. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. He says, even on a human level, once two parties have confirmed an agreement, a third party cannot come along years later and change that agreement. The only persons who could ever change that original agreement are the people who made it. And to add anything to that or to take anything away from it would be illegal. And you know that from human terms. And if that's true among sinful men, how much more does that apply with a holy and unchangeable God? Paul's point is simply that the promise of justification through faith made to Abraham is a permanent promise. And nothing coming along later, a third party, could ever, ever change that. If a human contract or covenant can't be added to or voided after the two parties agree upon it, then certainly nothing can change or cancel God's covenant and God's promise to Abraham. What was God's promise to Abraham? That in thee all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Christ. And and Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He gave the promise of the Holy Spirit of God through faith. And God preached the gospel to Abraham long before the law ever came around and before the covenant was made. But here's where it gets really good. So we see this permanent promise given And if a human contract or a human covenant can't be added to or voided after two parties agree on it, and God is so much bigger and so much greater and holy, how much more is that going to be true with God? But here's where it gets really good. The question is, how did God make a covenant with Abraham? Look at verse 16. He says, now to Abraham. So now he's getting to the point. So he uses this illustration on human terms, and now he's getting to the point. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, this is the part that's really good, because this covenant that he's talking about is not the same thing as covenant as man-to-man makes, This is actually the covenant that God made with Abraham was a covenant with God himself. 
It was a covenant between God and himself, not a covenant between Abraham and God. God's covenant and his promise to Abraham is recorded in Genesis 15. And I want you to go over there. I want to read the whole chapter. In Genesis chapter 15, I want you to see this. In Genesis 15... I want you to see how all of this played out when God makes this covenant. In, let's start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these... And divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto him, Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs." and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the rivers of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And he goes on to talk about the nations or the peoples around and how far the land would go. Now, God promised to bless Abraham, and the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and God justified him because of his faith. And then, to confirm that he would actually give to Abram the blessing that he promised him, to prove that he was going to keep that promise, he makes a covenant. And he did that according to the ceremony that was common to Abram in those days. And we find that in these verses 
In verse 8, he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? In verse 9, he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Now, in those days, to make this covenant of promise, they would, what they would do is they would cut up animals uh, that, that uh, maybe had, they had been sacrificed, and they would cut up all of the animals, and they would place them in two rows with a space between them, and the two individuals who are involved in this covenant would walk between these pieces of the slain animals as an expression of their promise to keep the agreement. And so on human terms, two men are making a covenant. They, they cut the pieces of the animals up. They lay them out. And the two men walk together through. I'm going to keep my part. You're going to keep your part. This is an agreement between us. Okay, you following that? But what happened? What actually happened here? Because God said to do this. God gave those instructions to Abraham to do. And Abraham went and did what God said. Notice that in verse 10, he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. But notice this. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So Abram goes and does what God says to do and he lays the animals out in the pieces and he makes the row and then he's waiting on God to come. So much so that the fowls started to come in on the carcasses. And Abram had to go and drive the, the fowls away because they want to come eat these dead animals. Abram's waiting on God. But then notice this. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now all of a sudden, Abram falls asleep. He's been waiting on the Lord a long time at least long enough for the sun to go down, and he, start, and he falls asleep. And in that sleep, God gives and lays out what's going to happen with his, his posterity, his, his seed, the nation of Israel, that they're going to go into captivity, and that they're going to be there a long time and serve this nation, and then God's going to bring them out with great substance, and God's going to judge the land and the nation that they serve all those years and so on. And so God lays it out for them. But then I want you to notice this in verse 17. Abram's asleep now, remember? And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So Abraham is sleeping. And God comes late at night 
And He comes in a spectacular way, this burning torch or this burning lamp. And the Bible says that it was God when He came alone. He passed between the animals, confirming the promise, confirming the covenant. He didn't invite Abraham to come along. He didn't allow Abraham to pass through with him. The covenant that was being made was between God and God, not God and man. It wasn't something like this. Abraham, you do your part of this covenant, and I'll do my part of this covenant. Abraham didn't have a part in it. Yeah, amen, brother. Why is that awesome? Well, go back to our text. Where Paul says, back in our text in verse 17, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was uh, 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. And notice verse 18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. God gave it to Abraham. The inheritance was given by promise. And this is what Paul is saying concerning salvation that it is given by faith in the promise of God. It is a free gift, not of works. We have no part in keeping of that promise, but we are benefactors of it. Isn't that awesome? The law and the keeping of the law cannot change the promise of God by faith. Salvation does not come by believing and doing the works of the law. And the point is this, aren't you glad, aren't you glad that your salvation rests on God and God alone? That Jesus finished the work and there's nothing for me to do except to repent and believe the promise of God. Aren't you glad that the keeping of your salvation has nothing to do with you as well? It's based on the character and the promise of God, not on my performance and not on my works, because I could never do it. God makes a covenant with Himself and gives it to Abraham by promise, and it was confirmed in Christ. I'm so glad that my salvation has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with the Lord. And His promise, who's perfect and who does not change. And Paul says there's, there's no third party that can come along and change what God has already promised. I want you to notice verses 19 and 20. So the first part here was that the law could never change the promise of God. But the second argument that he makes here is that the law is not even greater than the promise the promise is so much greater than the law. Notice verse 19. He says, Wherefore then serveth the law? The question is, why, what was the law given for then? If it's by promise, and it's all of God, and nothing of you, and you can't do anything, why then was the law given? If the keeping of the law isn't going to merit me something. 
Because you can't keep it anyway, because remember, the demands of the law that you keep all of it, all the time, perfectly, without any exception, which you cannot do. So why was the law given? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now, what he's saying here is that the law is not greater than the promise of God. The account of giving the law of God to the people, the nation of Israel, is actually pretty impressive. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Instead of reading this whole chapter, let's just skip to verse 16. And the Bible says here, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. So prior to this, God tells Moses, you need to prepare the people and you need to get them ready because I'm going to come down, I'm going to meet with you, and you need, they need to sanctify themselves and they need to do all these things. And we get to verse 16, and it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there's thunder and there's lightning and there's this thick cloud upon the mount, the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And the mount, excuse me, Mount Sinai was altogether in a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord, God called, Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Can you just imagine that in your mind's eye? That the people are around Mount Sinai, and all of a sudden there's thunder and there's lightning maybe like you've never seen before and there's this thick cloud that's black and the voice of a trumpet and it's getting louder and louder and everybody's like terrified like what in the world's going on and God comes down and all of a sudden the mountain is quaking and you're standing there watching all of this it's pretty epic that's better than any Hollywood movie probably they were living it it's pretty, pretty impressive, the giving of the law. With the thunder and the lightning, and the Bible says the people trembled with fear. Even Moses was shaking in his sandals. Hebrews 12, 21 says, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Even Moses was. It was a dramatic event. But it was especially dramatic in comparison with the giving of the covenant to Abraham. 
Here's all of this commotion and all of this huge you know, display that's going on compared to the covenant that God made. Man, that was something epic. And God makes this covenant with Abram that's calm. Abram's asleep. Well, what am I trying to say here? The Judaizers, they were impressed with all these emotional externals and all the big displays. The Pharisees were the same way. But Paul points out that the law is totally inferior to the covenant of promise. And here's the reason why. Notice what he says in verse 19. He said, go back to our text in Galatians 3. And Paul says, even as epic as the law was, it's inferior to the covenant of promise. And here's why. He says, first of all, the law was temporary. In verse 19, he says, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. He says the reason that it's inferior is because the law was temporary. It was something that was added till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It's obvious that a temporary law cannot possibly be greater than a permanent covenant. When you read God's covenant with Abram, you find no ifs in his words. You don't find that God said, if you do this, Abram, then I'll do that. If you do this, then this is what will happen to you. You don't find any ifs. Nothing was conditional about the promise. It was all of grace. It was all given by the grace of God. But when you look at the law, God says, thou shalt not and thou shalt. And if you do this, then you'll find some blessing. You can read about it in Exodus 19. He said, if you'll do this and you'll keep this, then this is what will happen to you and I'll bless you. They were conditional. They were promises made by God, but they were conditional. If you do this, then I'll do that. Not so with the covenant with Abram. God said, I will, I will, I will. So when you read the blessings that would come by the law, they were dependent upon meeting certain conditions. Furthermore, the law had a terminus point. He says, until the seed, Christ, should come. And so with the coming of Jesus Christ, with His death and with His resurrection, the law was done away with. It's a temporary thing. It can't possibly be better than a permanent covenant. Romans 7 forces, Wherefore, my brethren, you also be, are become dead to the law by the body of Jesus Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So he says, the law is inferior. It's not as good as the covenant because it was a temporary thing. And secondly, he says the law needed a mediator. Look at our text. He says, at the end of verse 19, he says, "...till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator." Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. He says, when he's talking about a covenant being made, there's two parties. And a mediator is one who's a go-between, and a mediator is one who is between two parties. Not a mediator of one, but God is one. 
And I'll get to that in a second. He says the law required a mediator. According to verse 19, when God gave the law of Israel, he did it by means of angels through the mediation of Moses. You see that? He says, the, uh, he says it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, the word ordained there, it means arranged, it means instituted, or it means given. The word mediator means a go-between. And I read in Acts chapter 7 and verse 52, in the context of the stoning of Stephen, Acts 7.52 says, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. The word disposition there means basically given. It's, it means arranged. It means given to them. So apparently... What Paul is saying here is that when God gave the law to Israel, he did it by means of angels through the mediation of Moses. And what he's saying here is that the law was actually given to you third hand from God to angels to Moses. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, he did it very personally without a mediator. A mediator was one who would stand between two parties and help them to agree. But there was no need for a mediator in Abraham's case because God was entering into a covenant with himself. Look at verse 20. A mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. There was no need for a go-between when it came to the promise of God. The unchangeable God himself made the promise based on his character. See, the Judaizers were impressed by the incidentals of the law. They wanted to keep the law. They liked the glory. They liked the, the accolades. They liked the position. They liked the thunders and the lightnings and the angels and the other externals. But Paul looked beyond those incidentals to what was actually essential. The law was something that was temporary, and the law required a mediator. The covenant of promise was permanent, and no mediator required, because it was God. There could be only one conclusion, is what Paul is saying, that the covenant that God made was greater than the law. It is inferior to the promise of God. It could never change the promise of God, and it's inferior to the promise of God. I think that's why Paul says in chapter 1 of Galatians, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another it's not another one of the same kind. It's not equally as powerful. It's not another one of the same kind. It's a different gospel. And he says that there's be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul also said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Why would you go back to something that's inferior, that can't do it anyway? 
and just enslave yourself again. Bless you. What time is it? Okay. We better wrap things up. Next time we're going to talk about how Paul says, thirdly, the law is not contrary to the promise. Look in verse 21. Note this question, and it's probably one that the Judaizers would have been asking. Is the law then against the promise of God? So if the law is inferior and the law can't change the promise of God, what was the reason the law was given in the first place? And is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says the law is not contrary to the promise. And you can almost hear the Judaizers shouting that question in verse 19. What was the purpose of the law then? Why was it given? In verse 21, is the law contrary then to the promise of God? Like they had him in a pickle, they had him in a spot, maybe they thought. And they're asking, is God contradicting himself then? Does his right hand not know what his left hand is doing, huh, Paul? Well, Paul replies to that question, and he actually goes way deeper than maybe they ever thought. And Paul shows a great understanding of the purpose of God. And what he teaches here is that the law is not contrary to the promise of God, but rather the law cooperates with the promise of God in able to fulfill the purposes of God. And so Paul explains exactly why the law was given and how its intent is to reveal the holiness of God and to drive people to Jesus Christ. Powerful passage of Scripture And what it ought to do is, again, cause us to rejoice in the fact that my salvation and the keeping of it has nothing to do with me. God made a promise to me, and I know. Listen, some people would say, well, okay, so you say you're saved and you're always saved, but you still do bad things. And, And if the promise, and you can't ever lose your salvation, doesn't that then just give you a license to go and do whatever you want to do and live however you want to live? That's the argument that some people will make. But real salvation changes a person. It makes them different. They don't have the same. They're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you know, we could, if if my salvation was based on my performance to God, number one, I'd never get it. (laughs) But number two, even if I had it, I would lose it. You know, and the argument again is like, how, how how do you know when you've, done too much and you've lost your salvation. Why don't I ever have to worry about that? Because it's not up to me. It never was about me. It was all of God. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you'd encourage our hearts and cause us again to fall deeper in love with you and praise you for the provision that you've made for us. 
that I have nothing to do with it in the keeping of it or the getting of it. Lord, you promised based on your character. I'm a great benefactor, but it's not up to me. And Lord, I thank you for that and praise you for that perfect plan of salvation. That salvation is by grace. It's given as a gift. And Lord, we, we, we pray that you would, number one, help us to rejoice again in that truth. But then number two, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be stable and grounded and rooted in truth. Lord, that we might be able to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that lieth within you. Mature us and grow us in our own faith, in our own relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.